Hey, it's your host, Carter. I wanted to give you a little bit of a warning. Kids who are under the age of 13 might find some parts of our show a little bit scary, so listener discretion is advised. Now, enjoy the show. I'm what you Orleanians of your foolish police call the Axe Man. Funny. Did you hear that? If I wished, I could pay a visit to your city every night. Joseph, Joe. At will, I could slay thousands of your best citizens, for I am in close relationship with the angel of death. Honey, I'm home. Honey? Oh my God! In my infinite mercy, I'm going to make a little proposition to you people. What was that? I don't know. Uncle Joseph? I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. (laughs) One thing is certain, and that is if some of you people who do not jazz it on Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. Welcome to Unsolved Murders. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Wendy McKenzie. Today, we're continuing our investigation into the sensational case of the Axeman of New Orleans. A serial killer terrorizing the Crescent City. So far, there have been five separate attacks. And the city of New Orleans is on edge. Five are dead. Four have been seriously wounded. And no one feels safe. This is episode three. If you missed episode one or two, you can find them on iTunes, Stitcher, SoundCloud, or any other podcast directory. And our website, parcast.com. That's parcast.com, spelled P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. As always, if you wish to subscribe to the podcast, go to iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. You'll want to follow along every minute so you don't miss a single twist or turn. Don't forget to visit our Facebook page, Parcast. To join the conversation. Today, our final look at the Axeman of New Orleans, the violent murderer striking fear into the heart of the city. He comes stealthily in the dead of night. While the innocent are fast asleep. Locked doors won't keep him out. The police can't catch him. His identity remains a mystery. Who knows who his next victim will be? March 13th, 1919. Ten months into his terror spree, the Axeman finally breaks his silence. In his famous letter to the local paper, he sets a marker for his next appearance. At 12.15 earthly time, on next Tuesday night, I'm going to pass over New Orleans. And lays down a bold proposition. Here it is. I'm very fond of jazz music. And I swear by all the devils in the nether regions that every person shall be spared in whose home a jazz band is in full swing at the time I have just mentioned. If everyone has a jazz band going, well, so much better for you people. One thing is certain, and that is if some of you people who do not jazz it on Tuesday night, if there be any, will get the axe. So there it is. Be somewhere where they're playing jazz at a quarter past midnight, and you'll be spared. Otherwise, you'll get the axe. Tuesday comes. Across the city, the doors open to clubs, bars, restaurants, and dance halls. And they're packed to capacity. Many past capacity. And for those who didn't go out, there were gatherings in private homes. 
come on in. The band's just about to start playing. And at all these places, they're listening to jazz. A local composer, Joseph DeVia, even wrote a special song for the evening, The Mysterious Axeman's Jazz, that became a hit in New Orleans. Maybe he wrote the Axeman's letter so he could put it out in a hit song. It was a night for the ages. Crowds and parties everywhere, eating, drinking, dancing, and music. It seems like a nice way to spend an evening, if you disregard that there's a serial killer on the loose. But he was on the loose. So the conversation was a cover for nervousness, and the laughter hid fear. I'm sure there were skeptics. Of course. One man reportedly put his address in the paper and told the axe man that he would leave his window open and be waiting. Don't tell me. He fell asleep holding his gun, and he accidentally shot the paper boy the next morning. Very funny. Midnight came, and then quarter past midnight. The appointed hour. The jazz played on. The party kept going. And slowly, people at those crowded gatherings across New Orleans breathed a sigh of relief. But what about the Axeman? Yes. What about the Axeman? As dawn broke the next day, it became clear. The Axeman had kept his word and stayed away. That fateful March night, no one was attacked. And that was the end of the Axeman tale. He realized it was crazy to run around killing people when all he needed to do was listen to jazz. Sadly, no. But it was another long interlude. Spring turned to summer and months passed. Then on August 10th, 1919... Five months later... Steve Boca, a grocer, was sleeping in his bedroom. When he awoke to find a dark figure looming over his bed... Hey! What are you doing? With one blow, he was knocked unconscious. But he was only out for a moment. When he came to, he ran out to the street to see if he could find the intruder. Upon reaching the street, he realized his head had been cracked open. Help! I'm bleeding! He ran to the home of a neighbor, Frank Janusa. Frank! My God, Steve! Are you all right? I've been attacked! He was in my bedroom! Easy there now. Oh, that's a lot of blood. I'm feeling dizzy where he lost consciousness and collapsed. We're gonna need the doctor. Did Steve Boca survive? He did, but he couldn't remember details of the incident. Still, it was a classic Axeman scenario. The target was a grocer and an Italian. The back door of the home had been chiseled away. A man with an ax attacked in the middle of the night. And nothing had been taken from the home. So robbery was not the motive. It was chilling news for the people of New Orleans. Because it meant the Axeman was back in business. That's right. The Axeman was back in business. Then on the night of September 3rd... A little more than three weeks later... Neighbors came to check on the home of a young woman, Sarah Lohman, who lived alone. Sarah! Are you home? She hadn't been seen, and they were worried. Sarah! When she didn't answer, they broke into the home. Sarah, are you here? They found the 19-year-old unconscious on the bed. Oh, my, my, my. Oh, Sarah. She had suffered a serious head injury and was missing several teeth. Let's get her to the hospital. The intruder had entered the apartment building through an open window and attacked Sarah Lohman with a blunt object. An open window? That doesn't sound like the Axeman's usual M.O. However, a bloody axe was discovered on the front lawn of the building. So maybe it was the Axeman after all. 
Did Sarah live? She did. She recovered from her injuries. And what did she say about the attack? She couldn't recall the details. So, that's two attacks and two survivors. I hate to be so crass, but was the Axeman losing his touch? We don't even know if the second attack was the Axeman. Maybe it was. Maybe it was a copycat. Maybe it was a criminal going after a woman living alone. You're right. She doesn't fit the usual victim profile. She's not a man or an Italian immigrant or a grocer. But one thing this attack had in common with the previous ones, besides the axe, of course, was that there wasn't much evidence. Which wasn't helping the investigators. The toll was now up to seven attacks, five dead, and six seriously injured. And sadly, the police were not close to solving the case. And even worse, the Axeman wasn't done. On the night of October 27, 1919, Mike Pepitone was home with his wife and six children. His wife was sleeping in the room adjacent to his, when she was awakened by the sound of a struggle coming from her husband's room. As she rushed to the scene, she nearly collided with a man fleeing. Ah, Mike, are you okay? Inside the room, she found her husband lying in a pool of blood. Mike! Blood spatter covered the walls, including on a painting of the Virgin Mary over Mike's bed. When the police arrived, Mrs. Pepitone was standing over the body of her husband. Later, they would remark how she seemed eerily calm. She faced them and stated flatly, It looks like the Axeman was here and murdered Mike. So Mike Pepitone was dead? Actually, he was still barely alive. They rushed him to the hospital where he died from his injuries. So the Axeman was killing again, at least according to the wife. But was she right? And why was she so calm? Maybe she was in shock. Or maybe there was a more sinister reason. Did the police suspect her of the murder? They would be foolish not to consider the possibility. Because the Axeman made for a convenient scapegoat. Still, the blows against Mike Pepitone were consistent with those from a large man, not a woman. Plus, we can go down our usual checklist. The victim was another Italian. There was a break-in. A man was attacked by an axe-wielding intruder while he was sleeping. All a perfect fit for the Axeman's M.O. How did Pepitone's wife... Now, Willow. Oh, that's right. Pepitone's widow. How did she describe the intruder to the police, the fleeing man that she nearly collided with in the hall? She wasn't able to describe any distinct characteristics. Oh, another reason the police might have been suspicious of her. But it was dark. She was caught by surprise, and the intruder was quickly gone. All reasons she might not have been able to describe him. Or... Or what? Or maybe she recognized who it was in the hallway and said nothing to the police. Why do you say that? Maybe she wanted to take care of business herself. What are you not telling me? Cut to one year later. December of 1920, Los Angeles, California. 1,900 miles from New Orleans. But the cities are connected by a woman who recently moved there. Let me guess. The Widow Pepitone also referred to in some sources as Esther Albano. And tonight, Esther is waiting in the shadows on a Los Angeles street. She's dressed all in black. And here comes a man, Joseph Mumphrey, who also used to live in New Orleans. Uh-oh, Mr. Mumphrey. Who's there? Joseph Mumphrey. Come into the light so I can see you. Don't you recognize me? No. Who are you? You killed my husband. What? You killed my husband. You're crazy, lady. I don't know what you're talking about. Hey, 
Take it easy. You need to pay for what you did in New Orleans. You got the wrong guy. I don't... <coughs> Mumphrey was killed instantly. But Mrs. Pepitone didn't flee. She calmly waited at the scene until the police arrived. Just like in New Orleans. When they got to the street, the police found Mrs. Pepitone standing there, gun still in hand. Drop the weapon and put your hands in the air. This man killed my husband. He murdered my husband in New Orleans. Go ahead and cuff her. The widow Pepitone had definitively identified Joseph Mumphrey as her husband's murderer and, by extension, as the Axeman of New Orleans. And she shot him dead. That's right. After all the blood and horror, the broken bodies and the broken lives, the Axeman was finally dead. Or was he? Our story will continue in a moment after the break. On Unsolved Murders, we explore the facts of real-life true crime cold cases. But if you're looking for more true crime cases with a bit of a twist, you should check out the ParCast original Female Criminals. When you think of a criminal, what do you picture? You picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. I bet you didn't think it could be the mother around the corner or the little old lady next door. Female Criminals investigates the lives of the world's most notorious female felons and explores the stories behind their dangerous crimes. These criminals come in every form, from serial killers and assassins to bank robbers and drug lords. Female Criminals is like a mystery and crime documentary rolled into one. New episodes premiere every Wednesday. Follow Female Criminals free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. And now, let's continue our story. Mike Pepitone's widow had killed Joseph Mumphrey on a Los Angeles street and identified him as the Axeman of New Orleans. But was he? The police reportedly began investigating her story and found it fit the available evidence. Joseph Mumphrey had been in and out of prison his entire life and during periods when the Axeman attacks ceased, specifically the time between 1912 and what they now believe to be the second wave of attacks starting in 1918. He had been behind bars. So the timeline fit. And another piece of the puzzle was that Mumphrey had apparently moved out of New Orleans right after the last Axeman attack in October of 1919, which would explain why the killing stopped. And what of the widow Pepitone? She still had to face justice for her vigilanteism. For the murder of Joseph Mumphrey, I sentence you to 10 years in the state penitentiary. She ended up serving only three years of her 10-year sentence. After she was released, she disappeared. So everything was conveniently tied up in a neat little bow. A little too convenient, if you ask me. What are you saying? Let's go back to the widow in a black dress. Joseph Mumphrey? Stepping out of the shadows to confront her husband's killer. Don't you recognize me? Doesn't that scene seem a little too Hollywood? You killed my husband. That doesn't mean it didn't happen. The pieces fit. It's a good story. The widow getting revenge on her husband's killer, and at the same time, ending one of the most gruesome crime sprees in history. It's not just a story. That's what happened. That narrative was put forward by a crime researcher and repeated until many people, including you, accepted it as fact. But is it true? 
Why wouldn't it be true? A modern-day investigator went back to the records to find out, and he couldn't locate any police or public court records in New Orleans or Los Angeles that mentioned a man named Joseph Mumphrey or Momfrey or any other variation on the name being assaulted or killed in Los Angeles. You're talking records from roughly 100 years ago. They got lost, misplaced, and they're all on paper. It's not like they're all computerized and you can do a quick Google search. Tell me this, if not Joseph Mumphrey, who did the widow Pepitone shoot in Los Angeles? Maybe no one. What? No one can find any evidence in the records of Mrs. Pepitone being arrested, tried, or convicted for such a crime. There you go with the records again. All I'm saying is this. What if the widow Pepitone, as the Avenger in a black dress, was just an urban legend? I'm not buying that. Why not? Here's something else in favor of what we can call the Mumphrey-Momphrey theory. The name Mumphrey, with a U or Momphrey with an O, was not uncommon in New Orleans at the time of the attacks. There are plenty of Mumphreys and Momphreys with criminal records, including a Joseph Momphrey who likely had ties to organized crime. Ooh, now we're back to speculation that the Mafia was involved because the victims were mostly Italians? Look, it makes sense. Some have said that the axe murders were mob hits against grocers. That explains why Italians, why grocers, and why the murders were so violent to send a message. But what about the victims who weren't grocers or the women being attacked? Maybe the hitman got out of hand. He wouldn't be the first one. Wouldn't the police have known if these were just mob killings? I don't know what the police would have known or should have known. I think it's clear they weren't doing their best investigative work on this case. Well, I'm willing to concede that still. Also, there is one more clue pointing towards the Mumphrey-Momphrey hypothesis. Remember the Tony Chiambra murder from 1911? Yes. The axe attack from seven years before the Maggio murders. That may have been an earlier spree from the Axeman. According to a newspaper at the time, one of the suspects was named Momfrey. That's it? A suspect has what you say is a common name, so that ties everything together? No. What ties everything together is a Momfrey was killing people with axes in 1911, and then he went to jail, and when he got out, there were more people getting killed with axes. And then he got shot, and voila, no more people getting killed with axes. You're always so sure of yourself. Do you have a better idea? Actually, I think I do. Our story will continue in a moment after a brief message. And now, back to Unsolved Murders. Let's jump ahead in time to October 30th, 1947, Tacoma, Washington. The day before Halloween. At the home of Bertha Clutt and her daughter, Beverly June. Suddenly, screams ring out. Two police officers are sent to the scene to investigate. When they get to the house, they see a man burst out of the back door. Stop! Police! The chase is on. I said stop! I'll cut him off. The police tackle the man to the ground. Settle down! You got nothing. But the suspect wouldn't go easy, punching the officers. Sir, I'm going to ask you one last time. Settle down! Even pulling a knife and slashing both officers. You son of a... Nobody pulls a knife on me! Before they beat him into submission... You're under arrest! Let's take him in. The suspect's name was Jake Bird, a 45-year-old drifter who, wait for it, was born and raised in Louisiana, which would put him in the state in his late teens at the time of the Axeman killings. So? 
Lots of people were born and raised in Louisiana. But our man was coming from the house of poor Bertha and Beverly June Clut, who had just been murdered with an axe. I'm sure this Jake Bird character proclaimed his innocence. No, quite the contrary. He confessed. I admit I killed those two ladies. But it wasn't my fault. I was just planning to sneak in and grab something. That's when they shoot up and it went bad. A month later. In November of 1947. After just a three-day trial. We find the defendant guilty. The jury convicted him of first-degree murder and recommended the death penalty. At the sentencing, unhappy with his defense team and the proceedings in general, Jake made a strange declaration. All of you would die before me. All of you would die before me? It was called the Jake Bird Hex. The Jake Bird Hex? That's right. It was directed at all those in the courtroom connected to the case. And before Jake Bird hung on the gallows, six different men in the courtroom that day died. Five by heart attack and one by pneumonia. And after speaking up in the courtroom, Jake Bird wasn't done talking. While on death row, he confessed to 44 more murders across the country. 44 murders? Making him one of the nation's most prolific serial killers. And you think Jake Bird could have been the Axeman? Well, he was born in Louisiana in 1901. So I admit the timeline is plausible. And he was a break-in artist. True. And he did kill others with an axe. Not only the Klutz, but two women in Evanston, Illinois, in 1942. But you're missing the main point. If he was confessing to all these murders, wouldn't he have taken credit for the Axeman crimes too? Possibly. I'd say probably. He's already on death row. He's already confessed to 44 murders. And he's going to keep another six quiet? Well, why not? You expect somebody who's killed that many people to be completely rational and behave according to your logic? Why wouldn't he hold back on confessing some murders just to keep some power over his interrogators? Or because he wasn't that honest to begin with? Nice try. But I'm sticking with Joseph Mumphrey. I think Jake Bird makes more sense. We're just going to have to agree to disagree. Or, even better, let's put it to our listeners. What do you think? Go to our Facebook page and take the poll. We'd love to hear your thoughts. Do you think it was Joseph Mumphrey, Jake Bird? Or do you have a new theory that could crack it wide open? Of course, one more thing about Joseph Mumphrey and Jake Bird. What's that? Those are just the human suspects. We hope you've enjoyed our exploration of the Axeman of New Orleans. Like all of our cases, this one remains officially unsolved. On the next episode of Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories, we open our investigation into the death of William Desmond Taylor. The killing of William Desmond Taylor has been called the first Hollywood murder. It opened a window into the seamy underbelly of the new motion picture industry. And the case was never solved. Don't forget to subscribe to Unsolved Murders on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or any other podcast directory. Or through our website, parcast.com. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T dot com. Join the conversation on our Parcast Facebook page. You can tweet us at Parcast Network. That's P-A-R-C-A-S-T Network. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Wendy McKenzie. We'll see you next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Ron and Max Cutler, 
digitally engineered by Ron Shapiro and written by Stephen DeLello. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Janice Liebhart, Kenna McEnroe, Stephen Pinto, Gregory Polson, and Vanessa Richardson. Thank you for listening. Fire, fire, fire.